Welcome to Tea with the People, the podcast. This is a series of conversations with innovative leaders who participate in our democracy by responding to racial injustices and inequities in the time of COVID-19. I'm Janelle Austin, the founder of Racial Agency Initiatives. And I'm Justine Lee, the co-creator of Make America Dinner Again. We engage leaders who work creatively to activate and support their communities. Through this podcast, we hope to inspire others to do the same. In this episode, we'll be speaking to Reverend Delante Golston, Senior Pastor of Peace Fellowship Church in Washington, D.C. Here's how they describe their organization. The mission of Peace Fellowship Church is to develop disciples of Jesus Christ east of the river who love God and love their neighbors. Pastor Delante is currently organizing a coalition of congregations in D.C. to divest from the Metropolitan Police Department and to reinvest in community healing work, violence prevention and intervention, and housing. He stands by the work of community police dialogues called Trust Talks, which he helped to start in Los Angeles, California. However, in this season, Delante is more interested in conversations with the police that lead to concrete systemic change. Welcome, Delante. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, just for having me. I really uh, am honored uh, to have a chance to talk to you again, my old friend. It's, uh, I'm really glad yes. you have me. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, we're excited to have you here. So just to kind of kick things off, we just want to ask, how are you feeling as we continue to navigate this national civil unrest? I mean, this has been going on for like three weeks now in all parts of the country. Um, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Well, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> Tell the truth. <laughs> I'm tired. I've been tired. Um, you know, when, when, when this uprising be began, I was already exhausted. Just the, uh, the week prior, I had to bury a colleague of mine, Reverend Dr. Ron Miner, who at 52 years old succumbed to this virus. You know, brother who uh, was with us when we first started doing peace walks in our community and first started really organizing in our community. I was already tired because my best friend, uh, my best friend's mom, his sister, niece, nephew, uh, they all got the virus. Uh, uh, most of them recovered, um, but um, it's just to pass, you know? Um, so I guess, I guess I, I would say that, you know, in our city already, just like every other major city in America, uh, we were already seeing, uh, although we only represent about 49% of the population here in DC, we represented over 70% of the cases of COVID. I know in Milwaukee, uh, it's closer to, to 80%. So yeah, I'm tired because it was like, okay, here we go again. But then <laughs> the exhaustion and the tiredness or the weariness gave, started to give way to like a sense of, hold up, this feels similar, but this something about mm. this was different. Um, and uh, I started to wake up to the possibility that maybe possibly potentially <laughs> that God was up to something, that the spirit was up to something. Um, so yeah, it wasn't lost on me that, that the uprisings, that the, the fire in the streets uh, coincided with in the Christian tradition, remembering Pentecost, the fire that 
uh, burned by the Holy Spirit to, to bring people together across race, across class. Uh, and that ultimately led them to start giving their money away, giving their, selling their houses and feeding the poor, um, ultimately led to, to women and men and eunuchs uh, who were the queer folks of their day being a part of this crazy Christian coalition. So I started to get energized. I went from being totally exhausted to, to, uh, to then getting energized and figuring out, okay, what do we got to do? Let's move. Let's rock. Let's figure out um, how can we lean in and, uh, and really mobilize our people in a different and a new way this moment requires. Wow. Well, first I want to say I'm sorry for your losses um, and the grief that you all are carrying because I mean, that's something that we all recognize is that all of this civil unrest is happening with the backdrop of COVID-19. We're still navigating the pandemic and the impact the pandemic has, especially on the Black community. That's still part of our reality, too, in addition to the uh, police violence that we're trying to navigate across America. So I'm I'm sorry for your losses, um, and my prayers are with you and your community. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Of course. Of course. Before we get too much into the the work that you're doing now in the context of D.C., we want to do a little bit of history, uh, you to give us a little bit of history on your work in Los Angeles in co-creating Trust Talks. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about Trust Talks and when and why did you start it? Because I think it's integral to the story of where you are now it's one of those things where it's like one of those, where were you when, right? Um, You know, for uh, millennial and Z generation, it's uh, where were you when 9-11 happened or were you born when 9-11? For for others, it's uh, where were you when the Challenger exploded? Uh, For our parents' generation, it's where were you when Dr. King was assassinated or or maybe when, um, when Malcolm X was assassinated? Uh, or JFK was assassinated. And and for me, uh, it was, where were you when Trayvon Martin was killed? Um, And it it was 2013. Um, I was in seminary um, in Pasadena. I had moved from DC to go to LA to attend seminary. And I was in a uh, white evangelical seminary with uh, folks from all over the world, but in in a space that definitely centered whiteness. And that considered, you know, all others as as just that, an other, uh, an optional aspect of a curriculum, a recommendation on a reading list, and not something that was seen as vital to uh, education or to Christian discipleship. And it was in that context of sort of the beast of white white evangelicalism that I and others began mourning. And I remember I was with uh, actually one of our mutual friends, Janelle. Uh, I was with Tamisha Tyler. Uh, yes. A writer and a, and a PhD candidate and an, an activist in her own right. I was with her and I was with my, my then friend and now wife, Claire, then Wiggins, now Claire Golston, Claire Wiggins Golston. And we, we decided that we would take our morning out into the street. So we got in the metro, went downtown to Pershing Square where people were gathering to protest and we said his name, we, we mourned, we grieved. And that was the beginning of a sort of a, a reawakening in me of a passion that um, that I had when I was in college, when I used to organize um, 
and I had I just hadn't done organizing in a long time. And so, you know, as part of seminary where I went, you had to do an internship. And so I did my internship at this church in downtown LA. And I'm I'm from DC. I'm learning about LA. I know the history of the riots. They call the riots. We call the uprising um, in '92. Um, but I was still learning. And so I tried to take that posture of learning into um, one of the ministries at the church called New City Church, where I was doing my internship that they had. And they were a part of this clergy council. I, what I learned was that that clergy council was actually formed by the LAPD, that the LAPD, as a result of the riots, started these, what they call clergy councils, where their whole thing was, we're going to get pastors together with the community and do regular updates and build relationship. You know, there was a brother who um, was uh, leading it. He's an outstanding officer. His name is Dion Joseph. He's got a heart of gold. He loves people, you know, really, truly just an amazing guy, whether he's a cop or not, you know, he's the kind of dude you say, this is a good human being. You know, he's also a believer in Jesus. We connected on that. And then, you know, sitting with all of the grief of Trayvon Martin, here comes Mike Brown. Okay. It's like, can't finish grieving one, one loss without having to grieve another loss. Oh, here comes Freddie Gray. We held a, we we held a prayer vigil. And um, what happened is there was a, a African brother his name was Charlie Kunang, but he went by uh, Brother Africa. He was an unhoused brother, actually from Cameroon. He had a, a mental health crisis uh, in downtown. He was in recovery. And people knew, you know, sometimes, you know, every now and then, you know, he would, you know, he would, he would self-medicate, right? And um, people knew him, people knew him, people loved him. But the police were called and eight officers tried to, rather than de-escalating a situation with uh, Brother Africa, um, they surrounded him. It's on, it's on, it went, the, the video went viral. They surrounded him and there was a struggle and, um, and they killed him. Wow. That was in March of, uh, 2014. Wherever anybody died in, in the streets of, of our city, we held a vigil. So we held a vigil, but this vigil had to be different. And I was asked to organize it and we brought in activists. We brought in, people who are unhoused from the community. We brought in also officers. Uh, at that vigil, I saw Officer Joseph and his partner, they were in tears. They were holding candles in their hands and, and uh, we were singing a Christian uh, uh, old hymn and, uh, and they were weeping uh, with, with the community. And they were just saying, you know, this is, you know, this is not what should have happened here. You know, we're, we're here with you, we're here to weep with you. And, I don't know, to see black officers, um, you know, Officer Dion grew up in Long Beach, you know, he's from the LBC, you know, he, you know, he, he's, he's a brother, you know, he goes to Antioch Baptist Church, you know what I'm saying, he, he's, he's, a, he's an ordinary brother, and, and I saw an opportunity uh, that there might be a possibility of, of collective healing that could come out of some serious tragedy. And so he and I, we started talking, and a couple of the, um, couple sisters who had experienced homelessness we uh, we got together and we we started talking in the weeks after uh, brother charlie brother africa died uh, was killed we said what we need is to create a space where we can hear from each other and where we can begin to collect community ideas around how to make policing better in in downtown la and we called it the trust talks uh, we brought in facilitators from the human relations commission in la that i trained we used uh, an appreciative inquiry approach, which is a, an approach that's based on asking first what's working and then 
what's not working. We sort of use that approach as opposed to, you know, just leaving people in a tinderbox, you know, and just letting dynamite explode, you know. Right. <laughs> we decided to, you know, really have a, a, a facilitated, you know, process. We used art so folks can write stuff. We use music because I'm a musician. Um, we brought in pastors from across the city. Uh, we coordinated with Black Lives Matter, even though they didn't formally endorse it. And so we would bring in different activists, you know, as well. And, you know, we would try to stack the deck really as much as possible so that the LAPD narrative wouldn't be the only narrative that people heard. And we talked about mental health. We talked about housing homelessness calls that, that they get. We talked about the fact that when you actually listen to the officers, they would tell you, look, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the best I can, but I'm the only person that comes when there's a homelessness crisis or somebody's having a mental health crisis. That when you listen deeply to the officers, they would tell you, that I'm a human being and, I'm, and, and there's too much that's being asked of me. And we did that wow. work, you know, over three years. We held sessions in downtown LA. We coordinated with uh, East LA Police Department in Boyle Heights. We did sessions in Inglewood with some Black Muslims, uh, some of whom had been uh, part of the Fruit of Islam that did security for Malcolm X uh, back in the day. And um, it was a movement that was growing to train people we would do trainings of the community first before they went into the trust talk so that they knew hey here's a systemic frame here's a systemic analysis for how policing can change so when we have this trust talk i want you to come prepared you know what i'm saying to really push our rank and file officers around a change agenda and so we what we did was we brought students from ucla uh, we brought um uh, what do you call it socio-ethnographer uh, students uh, who would come in and then like take notes at each of our tables and then we coded those notes and co and collected sort of the raw data of the conversations and then presented that data to uh, council member Jose Huizar. We actually had staff from his office to also come and we you know compiled the data gave it to his office to the, to the mayor's office and, and you know it became part of an overall platform overall agenda in LA County uh, to tra to transform, to at least to try to transform policing. So we tried to do both, right? We tried to be at the tables having conversation, but then lead our people to be out in the streets with BLM, turning up, you know, holding down space for 58 days as we did. Uh, we held we held space for 58 days out in front of City Hall, holding Mayor uh, Mayor Garcetti accountable for the the death of uh, Waukesha Wilson, and so that's sort of how the trust talks. Uh, started and then I left LA and uh, left the work in the hands of Pastor Danny. But I, I grew, I grew weary. You know, I grew, I grew, I grew tired of having conversations with the police and not seeing real systemic change. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I grew weary of sitting at the table with the people that oppress you, that traumatize you. You're already making yourself vulnerable to even do that. Right. And then you know, after you do that over and over and over again, we're still rehearsing the same liturgy of death. We're still rehearsing the same liturgy of pain and of grief, of black grief. I just, I don't know, there's only so much of that you can, you can do without just having to, to do something else, you know? So that's, that's really uh, what is behind the work that we're doing right now. How have you transitioned to your work in DC? Y'all have told us over and over again, you're, you're not a social worker. You told us we're asking too much of you. So, okay, let's take some of the money that you're, that you're currently putting toward new cars and new rocket launches and new equipment to surveil Black people and Black bodies, 
and let's put it in what actually works. You know, let's let's take you out of our school system and put counselors in our. We got schools in our city that have more, you know, more police in in our schools than we have counselors, school nurses. You know, this is a time where you know we we. It's not like we haven't done our our, our deep listening to officers. We, you know, we we listen. I I I, I listen to the commander of the police uh, district where I live and I go to those meetings and I hear her out and I have respect for her. She's an African-American woman that I deeply do respect and I believe that she does have the heart of the community in mind. And when I listen to her, she says, Pastor, we need y'all out in the streets. We need y'all, we need you. And so the proposal that we put together is to take, you know, 20% of the Metropolitan Police Department's budget and to, and we, the language we use is a refund. You know, it's our money, it belongs to the people. And so we we basically said it's time for us to get a refund. You know, mm-hmm. nobody continues to I used to work at Safeway and you know, I used to work at the customer service counter and you know, black folk, we don't come to the store after we done you know, you don't, you don't you don't buy rotten chicken, right? And come to the store, you don't do it two times, three times and keep coming back to the same store and saying I want I want an exchange. You know, after after you done exchanged, you know, one pack packet of rotten chicken for another packet of rotten chicken, you just say, "Nah, give me, I got receipts." Get my money back, you know. Okay? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I want my money back. And, you know, from our perspective, we got 401 years of receipts as a people. 401 years of... 401. <laughs> Come on, how many more? You, you need... You know, it's a long... It's a long... It's one of them receipts that you, they, used to, they used to tell us to collect. Yeah, like a CVS receipt. <laughs> Let's keep paying. <laughs> You know, so we, you know, we say it's time for a refund. It's time for, mm-hmm. for reimagining policing and it's time to reinvest, you know. And yes. So that's yeah. Where we're at. Thank you for sharing all that, Delonte. I'm wondering if you could tell us more about the people you're serving and if there are any stories that stand out to you as encouraging moments as you're doing this work in D.C. Oh, yeah. Well, it's always been both and for me. Um, the, the work against state violence is always been integrally connected with the work against community violence. They've always been both and. Um, I grew up in this city in the 80s and 90s. I, I'm very familiar with the reality of gun violence. And so I'm, in many ways, I'm a survivor of gun violence. My nephew was shot five times uh, within two months of my moving back to the city. I moved back to the city in October 2017. In December of 17, he was shot. He survived. He was 16 at the time. And by God's grace, uh, even though he was shot in his, uh, in his, in his thigh um, and it hit a major artery, um, but my nephew was able to survive. And I learned that my father, uh, when he got shot, I learned that my father got shot, right? My father didn't talk about his wow. Um I had seen the scar on his arm and I, you know, and I thought he had got burned. I didn't know what it was because, you know, I didn't, you, he didn't talk about it, right? But it took, mm-hmm. it took my nephew to get shot and almost leave here for, for me to learn then that my dad was shot. And, and it explained a lot, actually, about him, actually. It, it explained mm-hmm. a lot about some of the ways that my dad relates to the world as a Black man that I really didn't understand until I was almost, I'm, I just turned 40 this week. I was 38 years old when I found out, you know, <laughs> that my dad was shot, you know. It's, it was kind of a weird, a kind of a weird homecoming because when I came home and when I um, noticed where the church is located, it's a block away actually from where I lost one of my friends in 2014. Um, he was he was shot and killed um, coming home from the Metro. And so I was already sitting with that and like processing that at the time when my nephew was, was, was shot two months after moving back here. And so I, I just felt the spirit saying, you can't wait. 
you know, that was 2000 at the end of 2018. In 2019, the very beginning of 2019, there was a triple homicide up the street from one of my colleagues' church. And I called him and I said, Pastor, we got to do something. This is, this, is an epi- this is an epidemic. You know, I know we're in the middle of a pandemic now, but 2019 was when I, I kind of called clergy together to say, look, we're, in, we're experiencing a gun violence uh, epidemic. Um, in our city, like we've seen gun violence go up by 55% since 2012. And that's just unacceptable. And, you know, and we're a city that has more police per capita, more police per citizen than any other city in America. D.C. has more police. Let me say that again. D.C. has more police per capita than any other city in America. And my point in saying that is that if, if the answer to, you know, the, an epidemic of gun violence was solved by more policing, then like D.C., you know, D.C. should be good. You know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> right. You know, it should be, it should be like, you know, children running through fields of grass all over the place and just, you know, but that's not, that's not our reality. You know, the majority of the shootings that happen in my ward in Ward 7, they happen right around the corner from the police station. You know what I'm saying? So but let's not even, let's not kid ourselves about thinking that police uh, continue to, that police actually keep us safe. You know, in D.C., I rally and cry with, with BLM D.C. is we keep us safe. We keep us safe. Community, checking on each other, you know, social workers, mental health workers, you know, teachers, um, porch aunties that know everybody on the block, know everybody since they was a baby. We're those, yes. you know what I mean, that really, you know, really keep us safe. And so, so we started organizing Peace Walks in 2019 and we, over seven months, we did 14 walks where we, we just targeted communities that are most impacted um, by gun violence. And I think one of the real moments that really stands out to me is we were in Kenilworth. It's a public housing project. And uh, we rolled up on a, um, on a young brother who was 14 years old. It was, it was like August and he was in a wheelchair. And we asked him, hey man, what, um, why, why are you in this wheelchair? And he was like, I got hit. He was like, I got hit back in May. And um, <sighs> I don't know. Beautiful chocolate young, young brother um, with his entire life ahead of him sitting in a wheelchair. And we, when we came up on him, he was actually on a playground, you know, talking to his friends. Just this, 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 this notion of a, of, a, of a baby, you know, who can't, who can't even play like on the playground anymore, you know. Mm. We were with a young, we were with a, uh, another brother uh, at the time who was going out with us. We always went out, whenever we, we go out, we try to go out with somebody from the Department of Employment Services to be able to offer job opportunities. And we always try to go out with somebody from the Department of Behavioral Health to offer mental health uh, uh, and counseling opportunities. And we always try to go out with somebody from the Office of Neighborhood Safety to offer, um, like they have a program for returning citizens. So we, we never go empty handed. We try to always go out with not only clergy and community, but we also try to go out with like services that people actually need. Sometimes we even also go out like, and we'll hold a fish fry and invite people to come to the fish fry after we finish doing the walk as a way, just, just like doing engagement. But um, brother uh, Boone is his last name. I'm not gonna give his full name because I, I don't know that he necessarily won his full name out there, but um, he, he pulled up his shirt in that moment. He was like, you see all these, all these um, scars? He said, that's how many times I got hit. He got hit five times when he was 16. And he said, I want you to know, little man, you can do this. You know, he said, you know how long it took me to learn how to walk again? You know how long it took me to learn 
you know, how to use, how to use my, my extremities again. He was like, keep fighting, young brother, keep fighting. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. Wow. You know, mm. and I just, I had to sit with that. Like, you know, I, I, I just, I don't know if we sometimes realize how much like we are our own healing. Like, I don't know how to say this. Um, but it's not lost on me as a pastor that like when God does, I'm just going to just in the, in the Christian tradition, when God finally decides to come, like God comes in human flesh that ends up being mutilated and tortured, but ultimately glorified and healed. And like God in Christ, like goes around showing like scars to be like, Hey, have you seen what I've been through? You can make it. You know what I'm saying? There's no pain that you can go through that I haven't already overcome. And that's what I heard in that moment. You know what I'm saying? For my brother. And uh, I heard him like literally pointing to his wounds, pointing to his scars and being like, you can make it because I've overcome, you know what I'm saying? And I, and I heard, I heard the gospel in that, you know, so it was just powerful. You know, I don't know. It was just powerful to know that in the black community, like we, we have this healing. If we just tell us, you know, if we just show up, we get out the church and like go to the people and like share that with them. Yes. That that is an absolutely powerful story. And um, what I'm hearing um, through your storytelling is um, that you are taking a route in your city, in your local context of addressing the challenge of racism through healing. (laughs) Um, So when you talk about uh, divesting from the police department and reinvesting in your community healing work, it's addressing directly racism and dismantling it by uh, by healing the people, by healing Black people and giving uh, them the capacity to thrive and who they were created to be. I think that's beautiful. So, so that's on a very, very local level. How do you think that this kind of work can potentially have a national impact, right? Because I think that the pain of racism that you all are identifying in D.C. exists in other spaces and communities throughout the United States. Do you think that this work has national implications? I I appreciate this question. I, I hesitate sometimes to try to nationalize local work um so I, that's what that's why I, that's where i have pause i don't know mm-hmm. i don't know i don't i can't say that what's happening in one place should happen in another place but i i guess i can say that what's happening in one place can possibly inspire contextualize work in, in another space you know what i'm saying like i would yes. hate you know what i'm saying for somebody from you know, Kalamazoo to come and try to tell me that what's happening in, in Kalamazoo, oh, that's, a, that's a real place. I sometimes use that as a placeholder, but actually it's a real place. <laughs> but but no, no offense to those who are listening from, who are actually from Kalamazoo, my bad. Right, uh, right. My, my, my you can say Minneapolis. I'm from Minneapolis. I'm here. Like, <laughs> like, it, like black folk in D.C. would, I mean, we want to hear from black folk in Minneapolis, you know what I'm saying? We want to we want to hear from black folk in Milwaukee. We want to learn from black folk in Oakland. Like this work that we're doing, real talk, came from work that passes were doing in Oakland. You know what I'm saying? Like I didn't make this up. You know what I'm saying? I learned from what my brother Pastor Mike McBride, my brother Pastor Ben McBride. Um, yes. 
I learned from them. And in fact, when we first started, I actually had both Pastor Mike and Pastor Ben to come out and train our clergy around like what this ethic can look like. I had Erica Ford come out from Life Camp Inc. from New York, who works in, in Brooklyn, uh, doing similar work. I had her to come out. I, I asked for the fam who are on the ground already doing creative work to come and like speak into our context. But at the end of the day, we had to wrestle with it ourselves and say, okay, how is this going to really speak to our context? And so um, you're right. Um, it, it, this is work that's about healing. In fact, the foundational sort of scripture that I come back to over and over again around this work is Jeremiah 8. God says to Jeremiah, you have treated the wounds of my people as though it were not serious. You know, and then he cries mm. out, is there a balm in Gilead, right? And so I, I reflect on that, like, I, and I'm just not down anymore with solutions that don't take the wounds of our people serious. You know what I'm saying? I'm just, I just can't rock with that anymore. I'm just not at that point. I, I done turned 40. I'm a grown, you know, I'm a grown bleep man. <laughs> I can't, you know what I'm saying? I'm a grown man now. You know what I'm saying? I can't just be talking, you know what I'm saying? And not, and not having conversations that actually lead to change. It would be wonderful if our work might help to inspire other work in other places. Um, but everybody's going to have to figure out, you know, how this work with this kind of work can look like in, you know, in their own context. But, you know, broad parameters, broad frame. Yeah. I mean, I think, mm. you know, deep healing work is going to take fundamental reinvestments in, you know, having clergy being on rapid response teams. So people are calling 911 or 211 or 111 or whatever, whatever you want to call it, 311, that, mm -hmm. that somebody who's a member of the faith community should come out, you know, along with a social worker, along with uh, a mental health professional, along with some sort of a peer. I think those are the kind of approaches that I'm really interested in exploring. It doesn't mean that, you know, if there's a bomb scare, you know, of somebody, or somebody, you know, holds somebody at gunpoint that somebody isn't going to have to be called, you know what I'm saying, to deal with that. Um, but, but the vast majority of, of the calls, as, you, as, you, as we listen to most police officers, they'll tell you the vast majority of the calls they get are noise complaints, crises, and, you know, and, and people who are experiencing homelessness. And that's just, they've already told you, I'm not training that. So we're like, okay, good. Don't worry about it. Let's find folks who are. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've described some of the change that you want to see in your community. I'm curious if you can expand on that and focus specifically on what is your vision or your hope for how people engage government in DC? Yeah, thank you for, for asking that. Um, so we just last week, we just had uh, a series of, of hearings uh, that the uh, Charles Allen, who's the chairman of the Committee of the Judiciary and Public Safety held. And just as a, as a frame of reference, last year we came to the, we, he held hearings and we came out to those hearings as well and testified. Um, but there were only about 25, 30 people that testified. Um, this year, there were 15,000 people that signed up to testify. Wow. Uh, and, and only 90 of the 15,000 were actually able to actually submit, present their testimony live. Most of us had to email our you know, letters or testimony in to be submitted as part of the public record. So I just mm -hmm. wanna say that there is a groundswell of momentum around this issue. So, so that's huge, that's major. I was just on a call at five o'clock today where uh, our local council member who came out with us and did trust talks with us, he has proposed putting forth a policing commission gathering folks who are doing this work to actually compile all the best practices and make recommendations to the council. Now, I challenged him about this on this call because uh, I actually think that commissions are actually moves that politicians frequently make to, to put a pin 
in or to take air out of out of a, out of a movement. You know, you establish a commission, you write a report, you know, you make recommendations. But I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. now this ain't the time. You know, I gotta challenge him. He, if he hears this, it's fine because I told him so. I told him this afternoon. So I was like, I'm not trying to be on no commission. He was like, "Yeah, Pastor Golson, we'd love to have you on the commission. I put your name up to to recommend you on the commission." I was like, "Okay, but that's not what I, that's not what I'm talking about. Right. I'm trying, you know, what I'm, saying? I'm, I'm not trying to be on nobody's commission to, to write no report that's going to sit and collect dust nowhere. I'm not about deflecting from the energy and the momentum of this of this moment. But I mean, we organized, uh, you know, clergy over a hundred clergy and faith leaders from across the city, churches, synagogues." faith communities of all sorts to to send that letter to the council. You know, we've already received a response from a couple of council members already saying, hey, I'm, I'm with you. I support. Let's figure out specific details. So I'm like, I'm not waiting for a commission to be established. You know, the time is now. The budget is going to be approved by the end of this month. So we got to, if we're going to make moves, you know, we have to make moves now. And so um, our document is called The Time Is Now. Happy to share it with anybody. Um, and we're just calling for, like I said, a refund. Uh, mm-hmm. to reimagine policing and policing accountability and for and for reinvestment. We also started by by repentance because I felt like it was necessary that the church say, hey, look, black death has occurred under our watch and we haven't been as faithful as we should be. So I did I didn't start, you know what I'm saying, with calling for, for Donald Trump to repent. I didn't start with calling for the Minneapolis PD to repent. Nah, I started with saying the faith community needs to repent for being too close to power trying to preserve Thank our, you. With, with the mayor, trying to preserve our relationship with the city council and all type of stuff and not actually being about it, you know, for mm. our- Yes. How can people um, get involved? Um, what help do you need right now? Yeah, here, here in D.C., we need folks to call Councilmember Charles Allen's office. Uh, we need folks to email him. He's the chairman of the, com- of the uh, Committee on the Judiciary and Public Safety. We need folks to call and to email uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser we need folks to email Deputy Mayor Kevin Donahue, who's the Deputy Mayor for Public Safety. Uh, we need folks to call their offices, f- flood their phone lines, uh, flood their email addresses. That's Mayor Mur- Muriel Bowser. That's Deputy Mayor Kevin Donahue. And that's Charles Allen, who's the, the chairperson of the Committee on Public Safety here in D.C. Because we can't just have a city where we paint Black Lives Matter in the middle of 16th Street and rename, you know, out in front of the White House Black Lives Matter Plaza and we still proposing budgets that give an $18 million increase to the, to the police department. All right. Mm-hmm. Nah, 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 okay. Nah, come nah, on now. That, that, that would be the, that would be the, the call is to flood their, flood their phone lines, flood their email and hold them accountable to this document. The time is now. The document is called the time is now. The time is now. Okay. Yeah. We'll be sure. We'll be sure to share a link to that and get that call to action out to our listeners. And Delonte, how can people, follow you or follow this movement? Do you have uh, handles or hashtag? How can people uh, keep up with what the work that you all are doing and organizing? Uh, the handle is, is Peace Walks DC on Instagram. It's Peace Walks DC on Facebook as well. Delante, thank you so much for all the golden nuggets that you have shared with us throughout this podcast. One final question we have for you. Can you share with us a word of wisdom as a parting gift to our listeners? Mm. Now. Mm. Yeah, I feel that. Mm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, thank you so much, Delante, for joining us today and for sharing your stories. They were deeply powerful and, and for sharing some of what you've learned from all the work you've done, both in, in LA and also the ongoing work you're doing in DC. Really appreciate your time. I, I appreciate you all. Keep us in, keep us in your prayers. I appreciate y'all having me. We, we will. Thank you. Well, this has been Tea with the People, the podcast.